Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest on this Veterans Day. Uh, the second part of the program will be dedicated to veterans, including one gentleman that fought in the Vietnam War. But we're going to start off with Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin. Uh, she's coming to the end of her term. Uh, it's been a strange year or two in politics all across the country. It's uh, really getting more bizarre as we speak. Uh, common citizens can't run for school board or elective office. Uh, if they support saving kids with masks, they come under attack. And uh, it's really been no different. It's just been uh, the left as uh, doing one thing. They blame everything on Black Lives Matter. But this right is far more dangerous, I think, than the left. But uh, to, and, and to endanger anyone's life or threaten them is just totally unacceptable in the United States of America. So, Mayor Jenny Durkin, with that opening, I want to welcome you to Urban Forum Northwest. And uh, just want to have you just share your thoughts about what's happening right now before we go to the city of Seattle's business, but just to talk about the mood of the country in general to start with. Hey, Eddie, thanks for having me. It's so great to see you again. Look, I think you summed it up really well. It is a uh, difficult time, not just locally, but nationally. We've seen the rise of extremism. Um, we saw the extreme right wing come into the Capitol on the 6th of January. We've seen some um, more extreme behavior on some of the left here in Seattle. But really, I think that what our country has to focus on is the work to get to, to do and the lives we have to save. And, and I think that there's enough common ground that that's really what we have to focus on. But it seems like it's harder and harder to do. Uh, in terms of, um, I know that the, the policing all across the country has been having some serious issues. Uh, but then again, we've had some uh, dealing with this COVID-19 uh, battle and the pandemic is not over. Uh, and we still have these resistors. Uh, why don't you share with our listeners what's uh, some of the plans that, that you employed uh, to help resist the pandemic spreading throughout the city of Seattle? Yeah, so as you know, we were really ground central for it. We had the first deaths in the country um, and we were the first to get hit in our region. And we had no guidebook and really no assistance from the federal government. Fortunately, we live in an area where people believe in science and they're willing to make some hard choices and each step of the way we had to have do some really hard things the first was when the virus broke out uh, the nationally recognized scientists here told us you don't have just 20 cases in the region and at that time we had zero in seattle you probably have over 1100 cases and they're doubling every six days that meant within a period of about six weeks we could have 70,000 cases and maybe as many as a thousand deaths in seattle so we had to just pivot. That's why we went to shut down first to keep people apart because there was nothing to protect us. And then we had a stand up testing because you'll remember there was no testing available. We were able to buy our test kits from South Korea because I was on a, uh, a climate uh, committee with the then mayor of Seoul, South Korea, and they had a lot of testing. So we got the testing kits. We used them first in our senior homes, then we used them to test our first responders, and then we stood up the free citywide testing sites, um, which were hugely successful. Then we started on vaccinations because we knew that was the only way to keep people safe and really focused on making sure that we uh, worked with community-based organizations so that our BIPOC communities did not get left behind. And proud to say that about half of the vaccines that the city of Seattle did went um, to people who identified as BIPOC. We now have the lowest rate of hospitalization and death of anyone in the country. 
and we were the first to reach 70% vaccinated. But we're not out of the woods. We still are, as you know, now there's vaccine mandates at, at many businesses. And to be an employee of the city of Seattle, there's a vaccine mandate because we got to keep people safe. We got to break the back of this virus. Well, as long as states like Idaho only have 42 percent, uh, I suggested uh, when I interviewed Martin Luther King III on Monday night, some people didn't like my statement. I said, no hospitalization, no, I mean, no vaccination, no hospitalization. In Idaho, you know, they'll be inundating uh, Spokane and all the, the medical facilities along the Washington border with their people. But I want to ask you, uh, what are uh, your most proudest moments as mayor? What do you see your biggest accomplishments have been? And what would you do differently today, having the experiences been at being mayor? Yeah, so Eddie, as you know, I mean, my, my time as mayor is gonna be defined, I think, mostly by the crises that we faced. And the first was the pandemic. Uh, we've never seen anything like this in the city of Seattle. Even the 1918 flu didn't reach this level. And so getting us through the pandemic, responding to that, saving lives and taking each step and each step of the way, it was hard on people. I mean, you know how many small businesses closed and people lost their jobs. So being one of the first in the country to put in an eviction moratorium, to stand up a fund to help the small businesses, really each step of the way, I think that that's, that's what this time will be known for. And when history's written, I think they'll say that I got it right and Seattle got it right. I think we also can be very proud of the Seattle Promise Program, which I was able to get into place my first year, which is every Seattle public school student gets two years free college. Um, and we were able to almost double the size of our free preschool program. So effectively, almost every family can get quality pre-K for their kid. Those two things are really going to bridge that opportunity gap. And then we had just started when the pandemic um, began, matching up those two years free college with jobs and getting those students, those promised scholars, really good internship, paying internships and jobs with the innovation and technology companies or apprenticeship programs with the unions. And I think that's the very next step because I think that Seattle Promise program, the two years free college is all about opportunity. And I wanna thank the people of Seattle because even though the pandemic has been the hardest thing, we also kept going on really important things like repairing the West Seattle Bridge, finishing Climate Pledge Arena, bringing the Kraken, and having that arena ready to bring back the Sonics. Well, the other thing is the big issue, I guess, in major cities all across uh, the country uh, is uh, police and police reform. Uh, how do you perceive, and, you know, there was a big thing about defund the police, and, uh, I mean, some of my friends got upset, but I said, no, we need, uh, lawful law enforcement, but we also need to have people who can show up to certain situations without weapons. That's number one, social workers and other people who are trained in those fields that deal with the human uh, personality. But the other thing is that it's hard, it's, uh, hard, uh, it's hard to attract police officers. And I'm thinking that if uh, Adrian Diaz went down to Fort Lewis at McCord, uh, Lewis McCord, and offering folks uh, in the military $25,000 of uh, signing bonus, and they're making $75,000 a year, I think that you could be very successful. And you also have people who are really trained and they know what's happening. But we also have to realize that we have the proud boy mentality in the military service and in obviously in law enforcement in, in, uh, institutions like in Seattle. We had six uh, Seattle police officers go involved or go back to January 6th. And so that does the black community 
very little resolve when people have that kind of mentality and support that kind of, of activity. But anyway, I know I said a lot, but go ahead and respond to whatever you like. Yeah, I think, well, look, we know two things. Number one, we absolutely have to reform policing in America. Um, when George Floyd was murdered, there was, there was, as you know, just a passionate uprising throughout our country because it wasn't new. Um, people of color, particularly black men, have been experiencing that for generations. We've got to change how we do policing in America, and it has to start here in Seattle. We have to reimagine policing so we don't send an armed officer to every incident. But as you said, there are times when people call 911, they need a police officer and they need them now, and they need an armed response. And that's where we're having the problem in Seattle is not only do we are lacking the 911 dispatch operators, but we've lost over 300 police officers in one of the largest exoduses. Um, a lot of it attributable to the fact of the councils defund the police by 50%, how they treated Carmen Best, other factors too. But we need to rebuild that department. We have to have officers who will do constitutional policing, who respect community, who can work with community. And I think we need more of the CSOs, the community service officers who aren't armed, but can go into the community, get to know businesses and people, families and kids and show up in a way that starts to bridge that gap. So we have to do it all. We need more enhanced services and we're building it. As you know, we've got Health One, which when I came in, we saw too many incidences where police would come to a low acuity homeless person, and they only really have two options. If they're breaking the law, they take them to the jail. That's not very effective. Or they take them to Harborview, which hasn't been very effective. So instead of having a police officer role, we now have a medic and a social worker go to see what they can do to help. I think we can continue to do that work, um, and we have to do that work. But we have to be realistic. You know, in this last year, we saw a number of our unions in the city who would no longer work um, in the homeless encampments that they were doing because they felt it was too dangerous. So they wouldn't work there unless there were police. And we've, we had a meeting with most of the service providers recently who said they needed police to come more quickly because there'd been more and more assaults and the, and the need to transport people for their involuntary commitment. So we need both. Um, we shouldn't, we, it's not a uh, one or the other. It's a, how do we make sure we do both effectively? And you know, um, uh, we, we probably need an hour, but I, I just noticed, is that you in that picture behind you with that brother? It is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's President Obama, right? Yeah, it is President Obama. Oh, and I, okay. I just, uh, yep, that's, that is him. And I tell you, that was uh, some of the most, uh, it was such an honor to serve in his administration. I've got one, I just had a chance with, with President Biden too, but meeting President Obama and being able to go to the White House and meet with him there as U.S. Attorney in his administration was really a highlight of my career. And that's, that's great. So, well, I guess um, hopefully we'll have this meeting before you leave so that you can have the Fed, the MLK Gandhi Empowerment Initiative feather in your cap as you leave the mayor's office. Uh, that's the program that is, uh, we're doing collaborating with some uh, Indian Americans who are proficient in the technology industry and they've committed to helping specifically African descendants from the United States enslave us who've been here 400 years become uh, pro uh, proficient in uh, digital technology. And uh, so we have that meeting. We're going to explain it to you because we want the city's support on that. Okay. That sounds great. And I think you're, those are the exact kind of programs we need because we saw with the pandemic, the community's hardest hit or communities of color and particularly the African-American and Latino community, hardest hit economically, hardest hit with the health impacts. 
And that's because of the generational, uh, you know, as you know, what has happened in terms of systemic racism. And so we've got to get these kids and we've got to get communities tied up to the technology. Um, And that sounds like a great program. Yeah, we have nine disparity studies and uh, that prove discrimination against blacks and no one's ever taken any action to remedy that. But hey, my next guest is on old Mayor Jenny Durkin. I want to thank you for your time today. Hopefully we'll be meeting real soon on MLK Gandhi. All right. You take care, Eddie. Appreciate you. Thank you. See you later. Okay. My uh, next guest is uh, Dr. Karen Johnson, who is uh, the director of the Governor's Office of Equity in Olympia, uh, has been a uh, uh, a former a force down in the uh, Thurston County area with the uh, Thurston County Black uh, uh, Alliance. Uh, so she's well known. So Dr. J, as I call her, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest once again. And uh, give our listeners an update on what's happening down in the governor's mansion. Well, thank you, Eddie. It's always a pleasure to be sitting in your brilliance and in your presence, and especially on this Veterans Day. Greetings from Governor Jay Inslee. So much is going on in the governor's office to create what he refers to as a new normal. So next month, or actually the next couple of weeks, Eddie, we're looking forward to launch the very first website for the first and only Office of Equity in the nation, which will give everyone a good, good overview of how we plan to achieve equity and justice for all. And you talked about those nine disparity studies that uh, nothing, no one's done anything with. Well, I'm just certainly pleased to restate again that the charge to this office is to achieve equity and justice for all in contracting, in hiring, and we are taking steps to do just that. We are about 60 days out from launching the state's very first five-year equity strategic plan. And you'll see that we will have outcome measures, goals uh, that really speak to uh, removing barriers to accessing state services and decreasing these inequities that you're talking about across state government. And I just want to give a shout out to you and the, the partners and the stakeholders and the warriors that have worked to clear the path, so to speak, so that we can start achieving equity in hiring and contracting. So thank you for your hard work on the ground. Okay. And, and, and you, you had mentioned the, the uh, plan in terms of, uh, uh, and you reviewed the disparity studies, you know exactly what they say. Uh, you know, there was also a state Supreme Court, uh, Washington State Supreme Court ruling in 2003 that uh, said that, uh, or stated that the findings or the ruling that uh, I-200 did not kill affirmative action. We know that it was uh, directive, uh, Governor's Directive 98-01. But apparently the Attorney General and the State Supreme Court have to rule one thing. Uh, we've been without affirmative action for 23 years since 1998. As a matter of fact, that's an attributing factor to the loss, uh, the, the loss of uh, the Black community, the Central District of Seattle, because of the fact that intergenerational wealth wasn't being passed on and opportunities for African descendants of the United States enslaved were just totally uh, uh, gutted. And the numbers, don't, they don't lie. We have the numbers to prove that. You've seen it yourself. Uh, what is your, uh, and we're talking about a big influx of money for the infrastructure uh, uh, program happening. We've had a, I call it a, a plantation kind of relationship with the prime contractors and big white owned businesses. 
they can select whoever they want to to fulfill their DBE and minority goal. As a matter of fact, in Sound Transit right now, white female-owned firms and Asian firms are being waved out of the program. But at the same time, uh, African-Americans, you know, the participation is very little. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that folks have used this I-200 and, uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, whites that work in government agencies that if they have an excuse, including the, some some brothers and sisters, not to go and, and check and to make sure things are like they're supposed to be. There used to be site visits. There used to be reports given about the, uh, the progress of folks. Because, you know, uh, the last major contract in Seattle was the Seattle Tunnel Partners, Seattle Tunnel uh, Project by the Seattle Tunnel Partners, Dragados and Tudor Perini. Four black contractors went went broke on that one job, and WashDOT did nothing at all to help them or remedy anything. So those are the kind of situations we're filming. I hope you have uh, will have the authority or do have the authority to bring some people uh, to justice when it comes down to discrimination against blacks. We certainly have the authority to bring people together for accountability and measuring, as our strategic plan will will reveal. Uh, in the next 60 days or so. I do want to, again, just go back and say, though, that I'm, I'm encouraged, Eddie, because we're seeing traction on uh, rescinding 9801. King County uh, Council passed the motion to do that. There's been incredible uh, work from uh, Washington Equity Now and others in partnership and communication with the governor's office. Uh, we do plan to set forth the governor's expectations around uh, providing equitable access and resources to small businesses and local entrepreneurs for contracting, uh, set expectations for this disparity study, set equity goals in contracting and hiring, as, as well as just for, start with a clean slate. You know, the governor says we're, we're working uh, toward a new normal, one that ends these racial inequities and disparities that you're talking about, mm-hmm. that provides access to resources to small businesses and local entrepreneurs and contracts. You know, uh, a, a state that ensures access to quality education, no matter where one lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, achieves environmental justice for all, not to mention dealing with equitable public health across um, all kinds of dimensions for all people. So... I'm encouraged. Thank you for your leadership. I think it's a new day, a new beginning, and we're the Office of Equity stands poised to really lead on helping, other, working with others to transform how we deliver services to communities who especially have been impacted uh, by historic uh, racism, oppression, who are underserved and underrepresented. I'm looking forward to a meeting with the new head of the Department of Enterprise Services, Tara Smith, and the head of the Office of Minority and Women Business Enterprises, Lisa Vanderloop, so we can talk about the Office of Equity's role in providing accountability um, and monitoring of, of, of their role, their work, to ensure that we eliminate that plantation that you talked about that is an existing among contractors and subcontractors. So we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, the Office of Equity will be convening uh, lots of tables to hear a lot of voices, because I know you all know what to do, and you probably have told someone, but we haven't heard. So let's just come together, reset, refocus, and move forward 
with a clear understanding that I-200 is not a shield, not to uh, make contracts with people who look like you and me, but it is a way to ensure uh, equitable access and justice for all for the next seven generations and beyond. What do you say about the folks who were harmed during uh, the misapplication of I-200? And uh, some estimates were that, uh, uh, I don't know if this included all minorities or just African-Americans, but uh, the figure was around $3 billion. And that, that came out of a, a state study that saw the impact of I-200. I don't know. I know that uh, Attorney Jesse Weinberry had discussed that as well. And also with Attorney uh, Karama Hawkins, uh, both with uh, Washington Equity now. So I know that uh, they have been also on the battlefield and trying to work with folks to get things done. So I don't know how well things are going, but uh, what is the possibility of people being made whole who have been discriminated against uh, by the misapplication of I-200 and actually the discrimination against Blacks in the state contract? Well, that is out of my lane. However, I can, in terms of redress or reparations for the harm that has been caused, however, I can tell you and your, your listeners that one of the non-negotiables for our office is that the work moving forward is going to be guided by principles of equity that are in statute. And the first one is developing, strengthening, and supporting policies and procedures that distribute and prioritize money, resources, to those who have been historically and currently marginalized, including the tribal nations. So while this may not necessarily get to the redress or reparations for the harm that has already been repaired. Moving forward by statute, the state is um, required to ensure that if we're talking about equity, we're talking about distributing and prioritizing resources to those who have been harmed, as well as eliminating systemic barriers that have been deeply entrenched in systems of inequality and oppression so that we can achieve procedural and outcome fairness, promote dignity, honor, and respect for all people, especially those who've been harmed. Dr. J, why don't you leave our listeners uh, with your contact information because you are a wealth of knowledge and we couldn't squeeze it all into this short interview, but I'm glad to have you on this Veterans Day. And uh, I would like to have you, uh, uh, if you could, just give uh, our listening audience your contact information. Well, if they have to call Miss Tisdale, who does a good job, I want to give Latasha Tisdale a shout out. She's on top of things. I want to let you yes, know that, Dr. J. Yes, she is. She's got my back. Well, of course, uh, the easiest way is to uh, reach Miss Latasha Tisdale uh, at uh, 360-490-2877. The best way to reach me is via email uh, karen.johnson at equity.wa.gov. But yeah, so Tasha okay. Tisdale. I'll, I'll put that up on the picture also on, that I have on Facebook so, to make okay. sure that uh, folks can get that contact because a lot of times people have questions, they want information. We want to make sure uh, that they have access to individuals that are in decision-making positions that can provide them with information. I don't know at all. I just know who does know it all. I try to anyway. Well, that's well. I don't know at all, but uh, you 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 keep telling me. I'll know more and more. But the other thing, Eddie, is thank you. And 
we are seeking people who are going to help us to build back better, or to, to, to use the president's term. You know, we want to build a new normal. We can't do it by ourselves. So for those who want to reach out to us to, to be in the know but also to help in this work, we would love to hear from, from you and from them. Okay, Dr. J, as we remember our veterans today that went off forever fighting wars and coming back off sometimes the segregation, humiliation, and degradation. But anyway, still the most patriotic group in America is uh, the African descendants of the United States enslaved has been here for 400 years. So thank you very much for your time today, and we will stay in touch. Thank you for your leadership, Mr. Rye, as always. Okay, well, Eric, we're going to take a quick break. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. All right, now I'm unmuted. Eddie Rye back at Urban Forum Northwest uh, for the Veterans uh, Day appreciation with uh, several veterans from the area. We got uh, Air Force veteran Ray Miller, who is... Uh, also chair of another veterans organization and he's chair of the uh, arms uh, veterans and armed services committee for the NAACP. I think we have Claude Bur uh, Bob Armstead is a, uh, a U.S. Navy veteran, a disabled veteran. He tries to use the VA for services. And do we have we have Claude Burfing on? Okay, Claude, I, I didn't see your picture. So I see you now. Claude Burfing is a United States Army veteran. Notice everything I put out to make sure I put U.S. Let people know your service to the United States of America. And Claude also uh, was a Vietnam veteran, served in Vietnam. So uh, Raymond, I want to start with you uh, as uh, uh, chair of the NAACP's uh, uh, Veterans Affairs Committee to just talk about Veterans Day, 
you take about two minutes to talk about what, why did you go into uh, the Air Force and did you see any combat duty? Yeah, well, good afternoon, Eddie, and thank you for having me. And to all our veterans out there and their family members, uh, thank you so much for your service and your sacrifice to your country. Uh, as noted, I am Raymond Miller. I chair the Armed Service and Veterans Affairs Committee for the Alaska, Oregon, and Washington State Area Conference of the NAACP. I'm also president and founder of Vets Place Northwest Welcome Home is a vets organization to help veterans make that sometimes difficult transition um, back from military life back to civilian life. I'm also one of the founding members of the National Association for Black Veterans Incorporated, uh, founder of the Washington State Command Council. Uh, I joined the Air Force in 1970. Um, um, after graduating from high school in 1968, I went to work for the Boeing Aircraft Company. And um, uh, we were in the middle of the Vietnam War. And so many of my friends and were being drafted and going away and fighting in Vietnam. So I felt kind of guilty not, not joining them, staying at home. So I walked out of Boeing one afternoon on my lunch that on my lunch hour in 1970 and never walked back. I joined the United States Air Force. I've served in uh, all over the world. I've been to Vietnam, Korea, Germany, France, Saudi Arabia, uh, the Philippines, all over 26 different countries doing my Air Force career. Um, and um, yeah, we just want to make sure that we defended our freedoms and that we make sure that uh, we did the things we needed to do to keep our country safe and sound. Uh, was in the mid of the 1970s, a lot of things that was going on to at first for African-Americans in the military. And I wanted to help make sure that we had a safe, healthy environment community. And I wanted to serve my country the best way I can. Plus I also wanted to go around the world and as a poor boy from Indiana and from Seattle, Washington, I really didn't have the funds to go around the world myself. So I decided that the Air Force and to serve my country was one of the way to get around the world. So that's why I went into the military. And once again, I want to thank all those who served and I particularly for those um, uh, gold, gold star family, families whose individuals didn't get the opportunity to return home. They gave the ultimate sacrifice for their country. I also want to thank those gold world family, gold, gold star families that we know that we will remember. We will never forget the sacrifice that your loved ones gave to this country. Thank, thank you, uh, uh, Ray Miller. Next, I'm going to go to Bob Armstead, who is a U.S. Uh, United States Navy veteran. Uh, thank you, Eddie. Uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, to be on today. Um, as you stated, uh, I was in the Navy. Uh, I served uh, in the years uh, before uh, Mr. Miller. Uh, my reason for, uh, for joining the Navy uh, I was in college uh, in the South in the, uh, the early 60s. Uh, I participated in sit-ins, march-ins, uh, you name it. Uh, I happened to have been in college in Louisiana. And a person that you know, Governor Long, uh, decided that the problems that they were having in Louisiana was because they had too many out-of-state people in their uh, HBCUs. So he invited us to leave. And that made me eligible uh, for the draft. 
And uh, I decided that it was uh, better for me to join either the Air Force or the Navy uh, if I had to, uh, to do service. The Navy had the better of the uh, educational programs that I was interested in at the time. So I, uh, I chose the Navy. Uh, I did one tour. Uh, I am a Vietnam veteran. I served in uh, a number of places uh, in the Pacific. Uh, it, it was a interesting time. Uh, during that time, I'm not sure about now, uh, the Navy was the most segregated of all the services and, and things were, were difficult. But one of my uh, friends uh, rose to the rank of four-star admiral. Uh, he served uh, briefly here as director of uh, the Naval Command uh, here in Seattle uh, when he got his first star. And one of my classmates in junior high school and high school rose to become the uh, first woman of any race to be a commanding general uh, in the Air Force. So it, it was a difficult time, but uh, it appears to me that uh, there were better opportunities even with the fight at that time than there is now. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to uh, assist our brothers and sisters that are in the military now. Uh, and as you stated in your introduction, we have always served uh, ever since we've been in this country and we will continue to serve and hopefully uh, we will have more opportunities and uh, get more credit for the service that we've provided. Thanks very much, Bob said. Well, now I'm gonna go to uh, Claude Burpick. I didn't know you were a Vietnam veteran, Bob, but now I do know that. Claude Burpick is also a veteran of the United States Army and also a homeboy from Louisiana like Bob. And uh, he was uh, serving in Vietnam. So Claude, why don't you go right ahead? Okay, Eddie, thank you so much. Uh, where do I start with this? I know um, I was a student out at uh, Southern University in Baton Rouge at the time. Um, I um, got several letters uh, because I was drafted into the military and I got two deferments prior to and uh, the third letter that I received, uh, I told my mother, I says, well, they're going to keep hounding me, so I better uh, go ahead and uh, go into the military. Well, uh, I got my training at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia, and uh, uh, they later sent me to Walter Reed Hospital to get the training that I needed in the medical field. Uh, once I got that advanced training, they shipped me out to Kaiserslautern, Germany, 
because there was some, uh, and let me just say this. I was in what was called a strike outfit and that's strategical army corps. And they would send you wherever, uh, there were problems. Now, granted, I was in what you call, so, uh, it's, it's like a mash unit. Um, uh, when I did my, uh, six months over in Germany, they then sent me to Denang, Vietnam. And here, this is where I witnessed uh, actual war. And in uh, uh, being in a mass unit, I have never seen so many dismantled bodies. And uh, there are times when you still suffer from that because uh, it was every day we were bringing bodies back to um, uh, the unit so that uh, we had medical doctors and so forth and nurses and you name it uh, to provide the services that they needed. Uh, and I was part of that. So uh, it, it was, it's, it was memorable. And periodically I think of uh, the times when I have seen bodies that have really been dismantled. And I think about those things and I think about war and I think about the fact that uh, uh, when you're in that situation, it's horrible. Okay. Uh, well, I got a couple more questions, but I'm gonna bring Robert Stevens in for a minute. Then I have a general question for everybody. So Robert Stevens is also armed United States Army veteran. And I think he's the commander of the local chapter of the National Association of Black Veterans, NAB Vets. So Robert, why don't you share uh, some experience of your military experience with our listeners? And yes, um, I was drafted from Seattle down to uh, Fort Ord. I'm one of those 19 year olds, like most of us, um, that uh, got drafted throughout the United States and all of the Guams and Somalia and all those other territories. Um, leaving from um, Fort Ord, I was shipped back up to Presidio to be part of the Nike Missile Site Unit. And I served my two years uh, as a medic um, on the um, base of uh, over in Sausalito, Fort Berry, right by the uh, lighthouse. Um, even though I, 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 I didn't, uh, praise the Lord, have the direct day-to-day -day of, of having to see the injuries of war, uh, uh, bodies and, and other things, um, I mostly had to deal with a lot of the Viet uh, um, guys coming back. Uh, so mostly we had to deal with suicides. Um, you know, like that uh, one major incident, having to talk a uh, young man on guard duty with the loaded 45 and he uh, blow his head off uh, in the guard shack. So we had to deal with those sort of aftermaths. Um, I'm, I'm grateful for my service because uh, I was blessed to use my GI Bill to pay my way all the way to graduate school. But the hardest thing we had to do with deal with stateside uh, was the pure racism. Um, 
being called nigger every other day. Um, I got jumped on and was almost going to get shoot with an M16 because a young white soldier got upset because I got a rank before he did. And it was like we couldn't file Article 15s or any other charges against them because the old thing, boys will be boys. So a lot of this, the the stuff we had to help cover up as medics, you know, when someone got in a car accident or they went up on the hill and got sunburns, we couldn't report that unless it was almost a death injury, you know, to get them over to Letterman Hospital. Um, but I've been able to use my experience uh, there for what I've been doing here in my community for what the last 50 uh, one years, including becoming uh, part of uh, the African American Veterans Group and uh, NABAT. I'm a uh, commander of the uh, local Seattle Modulus King County chapter. And presently, I'm, I set up uh, our office that's in the federal building. We got put out last April. So I've set up my office here and home, uh, which includes administration of that, as well as continuing to do claims uh, for veterans. So basically what I'm doing now is helping veterans navigate themselves through claims and working on other community projects, such as my Garfield Superblock renovation, yeah. but other community projects that um, what I use as a therapy of the PTSD that both stateside and people that went overseas are still suffering with. Okay, here. Robert, so we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna move on. I'm gonna do give my story and I got two questions I want everybody to respond to. First of all, I have an honorable discharge from the army. Uh, I went mm -hmm. into the Washington National Guard, the medics unit in the 1960s <laughs> where I was 18 and a half, which I only had to do three, three, three years of meetings. But I went to Fort Ord uh, I was the youngest in, in the company, and uh, they were drafting married men then, and the guys were crying at night. So uh, I started telling them that their wife was with somebody else, so about six of them were going to beat me up. So they they uh, made me the guide on bear, so I'd have a private room. And one of the guys went AWOL, and they caught him, and the, they, the company commander blamed me because the, the white guy went AWOL. And then we leave there, you go to Fort Sam Houston for medics training. I get off yes. the plane, I get a drink of water, and it's a white sign only. I didn't pay any attention. And the white man says, boy, that, that uniform don't make you white. So uh, uh, that's my experience. They wanted me to go to Officers Canada School. However, Officers Canada School was in Fort Benning, Georgia. And I am um. been from Louisiana for 10 years, coming to Seattle, going back, experiencing segregation up close and personal. I said, no, thank you. I will not do that. But what I do want to ask everybody is now we have a situation where everybody has been defending the country. Yes. How would you feel we got uh, African-Americans, men and women in the U.S. military, in Japan, South Korea, the Middle East, and all around the world, Germany. And uh, if someone from those countries comes to a black and say, why are you over here and your people can't even vote? Is it time for blacks in the military to say, if our people can't vote, we can't fight? I'd like to have somebody respond to that. 
um, let, let me say is that we have always we have we have always defended this country, even when the country wouldn't defend us. And and, it, and for a lot of the times, it had been in the hope that we could, we, we um, I, I know at talking to a lot of the Tuskegee Airmen um, who served during the World War One, and my father who served during World War World War Two, and and uh, my uncle who served in World War Two, and and the thing that they, and I used to say to them, why did y'all go and why did y'all serve? But we you can still love this country even when the country doesn't love you, and we also got to take upon that that our families are here. And uh, one of the things that the civil rights movement really started um, in the 1960s of the civil rights movement really was the Tuskegee Airmen and the, those who served during World War II who went off to fight the war and went out around the world and came back with the knowledge that people are freer, that they were freer, as uh, General Powell called it, the breath of freedom. When we did the, the, the uh, movie, The Breath of Freedom, he talked about when he went from Fort Benning, Georgia, to Germany, that he called it the breath of freedom. What he felt, he felt first. He first realized the breath of freedom. Uh, he went on to become the first African American chief of staff of the of the military and the first African American secretary of state. And we continue to fight for those freedoms. And and we are better today because of people who served in the military. The civil rights movement really came out of the Tuskegee Airmen and the people who served during World War II when they came back to the United States and they got into positions like. Uh, uh, Hosea Williams and and uh, uh, and folks like him who came back and li who led the uh, civil rights movement of the 1960s uh, were those people who served in the military in the 1940s and the 50s. And uh, so we always worked at, you know, we always fought for freedom. And uh, I think we came out on the better part of it. We're not as free. We're as free to, I mean, we have more, I mean, in the 60s, we had the Civil Rights uh, Voting Rights Act that really came out of the out of out, out of those folks who really pushed for that. So okay, who wants to respond fighting. next? Uh, let me. No, go ahead on, go ahead on, Bob, because I know you. I told you yesterday I had a meeting with uh, Senator Murray at three o'clock. Remember we talked about that yesterday. Oh, this is a different. Uh, this yeah. is about. But I, that's why I wanted to okay. go next. So okay, that, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I uh, just wanted to say, uh, you know, coming from Louisiana, and this was back in the 60s, and uh, I, I recall uh, when I came home and I was getting ready to go to Germany, uh, and uh, I stopped at the Schwagman grocery store, and I, went to, I wasn't paying no attention. I went to get some water, and it says... Uh, white and colored. And I wasn't paying no attention. I started drinking water from the white fountain. And the lady came and tapped me on my back and said, boy, boy. And she called me a boy several times. Uh, uh, you're drinking out the wrong fountain. Well, I'm saying to myself, I'm getting ready to go to war uh, because there, uh, there was a, a cold war going on in Germany. And then this, my buddy told her, because he was with me, that uh, my boy's getting ready to go to war here and he can't drink water. Well, at that time, I thought, why am I going to uh, fight a war when I can't drink the water or be treated, you know, like uh, 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 I felt 
I felt like de uh, dehumanized. You know, I felt like I, I wasn't a part of uh, America at that time. But I understand the fact is, is that I also thought that <clears throat> things would get better because of the civil rights movement. So I, um, uh, I decided that, hey, you know, let's put this behind me and let's move forward and fight for uh, what we believe in civil rights and fight for, uh, uh, we're fighting for, uh, we're in a war or we're going to war or whatever. And we and, and I believe that we uh, were fighting for a reason uh, to make America better and stronger. So anyway, I have to go this okay, time, well, Eddie. Thank you. For, thank you for your time. Uh, yeah. Bob Armstead. Uh, okay, and it, my, my direct answer to that person is that it is evident that I am a fighter because I'm here. Uh, I do not run from fights. That uh, my people have invested 400 years in this country, and I intend and want my family and my kids to share the rewards from that investment. So I will fight here, I will fight there. Uh, I intend to do whatever is necessary for my people to be able to reap the rewards of their 400 years worth of investment in this country. Thank you, Bob. Uh, Robert Stevens, you got the last two minutes. Uh, mine is uh, to, to that person, I would say, the US is my country and the US is trying to help uh, with your freedom, but I would come back and put it on our administrators, which I think we should be doing now, is to say, why are we fighting and still have to come back home and fight the same battle to be a human being? So it would be more on the administrators uh, that we have now that are running the military as well as our congressional people. Uh, Robert, give our folks uh, the information for NAVVETS before you go, please. Yes. Um, NAVVETS, uh, since we use cell phones all the time, you can reach me at 206-327-4259. And I'll put that under your picture on Facebook, so it'll be there for a while. But I want to thank uh, Claude Burfick after plug out. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Claude Burfick, Raymond Miller, Bob Armstead, Robert Stevens from NAVVETS uh, for their time today uh, as we talk about uh, Veterans Day and where do we go from here. So I want to thank all you gentlemen. Thank you very much for the, your time today. Thanks for the invite. All right. Thank you for okay. having us. Thank you, Eddie. Right. Okay, now. Okay, so uh, before we go, I'm going to give a shout out to people who help keep this program on the air. And that's uh, Leslie Jones, uh, Chief of Labor at Sound Transit, Jonte uh, Robinson, who is a civil rights chief down there, uh, my friend Nikki Croxon and the supervisor of accounts payable, and then over at the City of Seattle's Purchasing and Construction Services Office, Liz Alzier, Carmen, Carol, Jesse, and Mark, and then also uh, at uh, the Port of Seattle, uh, me and Rice, Diversity Contracting Office with uh, his... Uh, Lieutenant and right-hand man, uh, Lawrence Coleman. Thank you for all you do, brother. And also uh, support uh, the stores owned by Court Concourse Concessions out of SeaTac, and also SeaTac Bar Group LLC, which is uh, SeaTac uh, 
Africa Lounge and the Mountain Room Bar. And uh, uh, let me ask Bob, he's still on the line. Uh, Bob, uh, are there any activities planned for the day for a veterans group that you're aware of? Uh, not that I'm specifically aware of. I, I'm sure Robert would have more information on that than I. Well, Robert, is uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 keeping uh, the veterans from coming together to celebrate on Veterans Day or do anything? Those restaurants that are open uh, do uh, do their free dinner um, uh, on Veterans Day. And you, you probably would have to call the, the restaurant. Basically, not as most of the med, major restaurants um, that are out there, but call the restaurant and ask them how they open and are okay. uh, serving veterans. Thank you. Thank everybody. We're going to take a break and we'll be gone. See you again next Thursday. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion, and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the Port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. 